0: So we are currently working our way through the book of Acts. Um, you know, not, not for my own sake because, you know, it, it, all the glory goes to God. But have you guys been enjoying this study that we've been in for a while? Now, I, I really have. I mean, it, it really begins with me, right? I'm, I'm the one studying the Word and all that and meditating on it and marinating on it and all that and then coming and teaching it. But um, I just find that God's Word is just so marvelous and so beyond. It's just spectacular. And I've just so enjoyed this study and all the work the Lord's been doing in my life and just changing me and chipping away at all the junk and the trash and making me like His son. I mean, it's just, a, it's just an amazing, it's a painful thing at times, but it's an amazing thing. And I've just been enjoying the Word of God. I have. And I've been enjoying you and the interaction, the conversations about it. It's just spectacular. We ought to just, I think, begin by giving the Lord a huge hand for His grace, right? And for how He's... That He's made Himself known to us in the way of salvation, the way of righteousness, that this Bible is a light to our path. Are you kidding me? You can't get better than that. What would we be without the Word of God? Groping around in darkness. Unbelievable. So, excited about that. We have been examining chapter 14. We just started actually in 14. We took a while in 13. So, if you want to, you can just take your Bibles and turn right over to Acts 14. Acts 14. Acts chapter 14. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back over there by the serve wall. And you could grab a Bible and, and, and you could even keep that Bible and you could also sign up to serve. <laughs> Got to get it in there somehow. Um, No, but you could definitely get a Bible over there. We've got some great hardback Bibles back there, and that can be a gift to you if you don't have one. Um, So basically last week we kicked off with chapter 14, and we focused on verses 1 to 7, right? You remember? Verses 1 to 7 was kind of our starting point. We learned about how Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel in the Galatian town of Iconium. Something we studied, We, we... Learned about how a great number of those Iconian townsmen had been won to Christ, that God did a a, a miraculous saving work in that particular community. We also learned that the unbelieving Jews, there were some Jews there that didn't give their lives to Christ who rejected the gospel. They were called unbelieving Jews and how they wanted to drive Paul and Barnabas out of town. So what did they do? They poisoned the mind of some of the unbelieving Gentiles and they stirred them up against the brothers is what the text said. And Paul and Barnabas were resolute and unwavering and continued in spite of all of this persecution and and hatred towards them and slander and all these things. They were resolute and continued to boldly preach and evangelize in that community. I think we all marveled last week at their boldness and that boldness can only come from the Lord. There's just no way. We don't have those abilities. We do not possess that kind of boldness to stand on the truth and to hold our ground. It only comes from Jesus because he was incredibly bold. And so they stayed in it. They stayed in the thick of it and kept preaching. But they were dealing with a lot of stuff. The unbelieving Jews and the stirred up Gentiles went to Iconium's political leaders and requested that the political leaders get involved. Okay, so they really couldn't stand the preaching. They hated the message. They hated the fact that they were getting a lot of attention and people were being saved. And so these two groups, these stirred up Gentiles, poison-minded Gentiles and unbelieving Jews, went to the political leaders. Why not go to your senator, right? They went to their local senator. They went to their local mayor or what have you, assemblymen, and, and got them involved in this thing. And it was crazy. The three groups then formed a plan to mistreat and stone Barnabas and Paul, They had this plan where they were going to kind of try to stone them, and we're not certain if they were going to try to kill them. I think they probably were, or they were just going to try to drive them out of town. But they had this plan where they were going to, like, you know, they were in the alleyway or whatever. I don't know how it played out. And there they are, you know, and they were going to try to get them. And but Paul and Barnabas learned of it. They found out about the plan before it was hatched, and they fled to the district of Lycaonia and visited two cities, Lystra and Derbe. After arriving in those cities, Paul and Barnabas began to do the very thing that kept getting them in trouble wherever they went. And that is that they boldly preached the gospel. We can't preach it here anymore. They're going to try to kill us. We'll go over here and preach it. And that's kind of how they did it. And it's amazing that every time they moved to another city, it was because of persecution. You see how God uses persecution? We fret. We cry, we run, we hide when it comes and God uses it to drive His church into new districts. That's what we see in the New Testament. It's amazing. That's how the Gentile church was birthed to begin with. All the Christians were localized in Jerusalem. And if it hadn't been for Saul of Tarsus and the persecution he brought out, they'd still be there chanting Jesus and loving Him and we'd be lost. That's what we do. God uses persecution. He uses His enemies To drive the church into the places that he wants to reach people and call the elect out of darkness. It's amazing. Isn't it amazing what God uses? He uses all things. Everything. He uses it all. He's sovereign. And so persecution came. They bounced and they went and they started doing the same thing. Man, who does that, right? I go into, you know, seclusion. I go into a cave and hide and just get in my Bible. I love the Lord these guys went right to another city and started preaching the same gospel that had their lives, caused their lives to be threatened. Amazing. The boldness and determination of Paul and Barnabas is extraordinary. Entire cities erupted in hatred and violence against them for preaching Christ, but they were unflinching. They were resolved to continue the work of the Lord I love what John Calvin said about this not in a commentary about this particular verse but it's something that he had said about something else and he said when any person has fixed his eyes on God notice fixed they don't move when they're fixed on God his heart will be invincible and utterly incapable of being moved and I think that statement really describes really well Paul and Barnabas don't you? They were fixed on God Almighty. Their hearts were secured in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And they were utterly incapable of being moved away from the gospel ministry. They did not vacillate. They did not modify their preaching. They did not cheapen the gospel. And they did not forsake the mission. When forced from one place... They began again in another. Man. Now this is where we pick up in the biblical narrative, okay? You're already over in Acts 14. If you're there, say I'm there. there. And we need to pick up in verse 8, okay? That's where we left off last week. Let me pray and we'll get right to work. Amen? Amen. Father God, stoke our hearts this morning, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we... (laughs) As I say every week, we come in, I come in here as, as, as Phil Baker, and I want to leave as a, as a better Phil Baker, a more equipped Phil Baker for you, that I may be emboldened, encouraged, emboldened, and better equipped to be a man of God. And that is our heart cry for every individual in this room today. There might be some here today that don't know you, Lord. I pray, God, by the might and power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help them, draw them, secure them in your son, Jesus Christ. And for those who do know you, embolden us again, once again. Change us, transform us. Make us more like your son who didn't flinch. Cause us to serve you with hearts ablaze. community needs a church like that a bold church who loves you and loves others so open our hearts and minds to your word today lord do your mighty work it's work that only you can do i can't do anything these people can't change themselves they're helpless we need you and so we give you permission and we put ourselves in a submitted way before you please help us today lord jesus May you receive all the glory and honor and praise and accolades. Anything that this sermon could possibly bring you, receive it. It's all for you. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. We're going to pick up in 8. And uh, I think I'm probably going to just read right through to 9 and 10. 8, 9, and 10. You ready? Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looked intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. That's what your Bible says or something close to it if you don't use the blessed ESV like me. So, I just love throwing that in there. One of these days I'm going to convert you. Paul Rogers is like, no way, buddy. NASB for life. And that's fine with me. It's better than the message. Okay. According to verses uh, 6 and 7, we just back up a little bit. Paul and Barnabas had already been preaching the gospel in Lystra Derby. And throughout it says the surrounding countryside. Okay, the most populated place. Now, so, so what's our context? They'd already been preaching in and out of these cities. They'd been moving around and going from one to the other and preaching. And in the surrounding countryside on the local dairies. I don't know what they had there. It's not like here, but whatever. So they'd been preaching. Now the most populated place in the city would have been the agora or marketplace. And I'm kind of referring to any city basically. Any city would have had an agra or marketplace. Okay. Now Paul visited synagogues and agoras when he entered a new city. Whenever he went on his missions journeys and went to a city he went to synagogues first if they had a synagogue. And if they didn't have a synagogue because there wasn't a population of Jews there it was so minimal they didn't have a synagogue. He'd go to an agra. And if there was a city that had a synagogue and an agora, he would go to a synagogue first, right? To the Jew first. And then he would go to the agras. He would go to these marketplaces. He would go down to Vintage Fair Mall. And he'd make a scene. And all those rent cops would... No, I'm just kidding. All those loving security guards would come. And they used to jack me up with my skateboard back in the day. I'd go there and ride around and they'd try to arrest me. And he'd be like... Neer, neer, neer. But they would be there and they would be all over this guy like a cheap suit. He would go right down to Vintage Fair Mall. He would go right into your Gilroy Outlet Center, which I love. He would go into these major, major shopping places, these major marketplaces. And of course he went to the synagogues as well. Now at Lystra's Agora, Paul noticed, okay, he'd been preaching in and out of this Agora, this marketplace, and the text says that he noticed a particular man. You noticed a guy there. Okay, and I think that's amazing. And such is the grace and mercy and extraordinary sovereignty and power of God when you're in a place with a zillion people. How do you notice one guy? Just go to Vintage Fair. You're going to notice about 5,000 people and you're going to leave and you're going to be frustrated, right, because of the 5,000 people, right? He notices this one guy, this one particular person. Now, Luke tells us four things about this guy, Okay? Number one, he sat, okay? Now, I think that this probably, because he was a sitter, I believe this indicates that he was probably a beggar, okay? It's a marketplace. You don't sit down. Where do you sit down when your wife's trying on clothes, guys? I look for the closest place I can, right? Where do you sit down, right? Okay, you don't sit down in a marketplace. Not even the merchants sit down. And so this guy was... Seated, And I believe that's because he was a beggar. It makes sense. Number two, he could not use what? What's the text say? I hope you're following it. That's right. He couldn't use his feet. Number three, the other detail there, the third detail is he was crippled from birth. Okay, you see the detail? And then the fourth detail we see, the fourth uh, fourth descriptor is that he had never ever walked he had never walked before now Luke's fourfold description is meant to emphasize this particular man's hopeless 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 condition he sat because he couldn't stand his feet didn't work he was crippled from birth had never known what it was like to walk Okay, So what Luke is saying here is that this guy was utterly hopeless in his physical condition. He couldn't do anything but sit there. And I believe he sat and begged, as most crippled people in those days did, and even do today to some degree when you see them out on the streets, the homeless, crippled folks. Luke tells us something extraordinarily interesting, though. And that is that the crippled man listened to Paul speak. You see it there, right? He listened to him speak, and the verse suggests something very interesting here, and it suggests in the original language that the guy listened to Paul over a period of time, okay? So this, this wasn't a, in other words, this wasn't a first-time deal when he listened to him, and it wasn't a second-time deal. There was this sort of perpetual state of listening to Paul preach the gospel, Okay? So he listened to him pretty regularly. Whenever Paul came to the agora, this man paid attention. And it could have been dozens of times. I don't know. Paul preached in the agora many times. And each time he did so, this crippled man listened to him. Now, Paul, it says in the text, Paul took notice of him. And it would appear that the reason why he took notice of him wasn't, you know, entirely because of just this heart of compassion, which we know that Paul had. He did have a heart of compassion and love for others. In fact, it's it's, it's hard it's hard to rival him in his love for others if you study his life and ministry. He was an amazing lover of people. He loved sinners. He loved his brother Jews. He loved Gentiles. I think there's a compassion element to it, but I think it was bigger than that. I think he saw a potential opportunity in this man. He saw his hopeless condition, and he saw an opportunity. He saw an opportunity to affirm The truth of his preaching through miraculously healing the crippled man. Okay? Purpose of miracles, as we study in scripture, is to authenticate the preached word. Hey, that's the purpose of miracles. It doesn't mean that God doesn't heal people because he doesn't love them or he's not compassionate. Of course he does. Of course he's compassionate. Of course he's merciful. But miracles have a grander purpose and the purpose of miracles is to authenticate what's being preached Okay, if someone comes claiming that they have a divine message obviously it would be the gospel in this context, then God backs up what they're saying he proves their authority to preach it and the truth and legitimacy and accuracy of his word by backing it with a miracle he says something extraordinary, people are like wow, and then bam, a guy gets healed and people go, whoa what he's saying is obviously true because David Copperfield in Vegas last week could never do that to a guy. Right? You know, that that little that, right? He backs up his word. He backs up the truth of his word with miracles. He saw an opportunity. And it says and because of this he looked at him with the intention of Healing the man, performing a miracle to authenticate his word. And and the text is interesting too because it says that he could even see, Paul that is, could see that the grace of God was already at work in the crippled man. He could see that the seeds of faith had been planted and had begun to grow. Right? The text says Paul noticed that he had the faith. To be made well. And the truth of scripture is. Is that nobody on their own possesses faith. It's a gift from God. And so God had already given this man a measure of faith. And had begun to work that faith in his life. The crippled man believed the gospel. Essential. And that Christ could heal him. The crippled man's faith was the result of Paul's consistent preaching in the Agora. And obviously, the main part of that would be the work and power of the Holy Spirit that was at work in this man's life. So what I'm telling you is this guy didn't bring himself to faith. He had been listening and listening and listening. And God blessed him and opened his eyes and opened his heart. And the man understood the gospel and received it by faith thus having the faith to be made well. Many people take this and try to run with it and say, look, every person has this potential for faith and every person can believe if they choose to and all that. That's not what Scripture teaches. Faith is a gift given by God. Okay? And it is true that all sorts of people, every race, tongue, background, language, get saved because God is good. He saves people everywhere. So this guy had these... The faith to be made well because God was already at work in his life. And then grabbing the attention of everyone within earshot, Paul said to the crippled man in a loud voice, what did he say? Stand upright on your feet. Okay, Paul issued a command to him. He didn't say, if you'd like to, stand up. If you could, try to stand up. Okay, this was a decisive, you know, explicit command to stand. And with the words came the power. With the words came the miracle. The end of verse 10 says, what about the crippled man? He sprung up and began walking. He didn't get up going, oh, I wonder if they're going to work. He got up going, you know, a little sideshow, right? He got up and started walking. He'd never walked before. How many of you have had children? How long did it take for your babies to learn to walk? And how many corners of tables did they blow off with their face? Right? I got three boys, every one of them. Right? ah! Oh, take him to the ER. Calm down, Rachel. His head will grow back. This man did not go through some toddler process. His feet had never worked. He'd never known anything but this. Right? You got a dollar? Never knew anything but that. And all of a sudden he's up and he's moving around. He's walking. See, with the miracle and the restoration of his feet came the ability to walk. And such are the miracles of God. They're complete. They're full. Pretty amazing thing that happens here. He sprang up and began walking. Now, let me ask you a question. Does any of this sound familiar? Does any of this ring a bell if you've been with us for any amount of time? Does it sound familiar? Have we studied something similar in months past? Yes. You remember what happened with Peter, John, and the lame beggar in Acts 3, 1 to 10? Now, if you don't, I'll help you. There was a lame beggar who sat at the beautiful gate. Of the temple every day, and what did he do there? He asked for alms. He was a beggar. He asked for money. As Peter and John passed by on their way to temple, on the way to the temple to pray, as was their custom, the lame beggar asked for a donation. Can you hook a brother up? I'm hungry. You got any you got some cash? You got a couple shekels? That's a lot, actually. You got a mina? That's even more, I think, or less. I don't know. Do you have anything? Do you have a drachma? Do you have coins? Do you have money? He was a beggar. Peter and, Paul, or Peter and John walked by, and he asked for money, and Peter declared what? You remember? It was such a neat thing. He said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. I got something better for you, pal. And he said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior, rise up and walk. Remember that? I'm not going to give you something else. You want, you want a quarter. How about the ability to walk? Wow. And what happened with the lame beggar? He immediately leapt to his feet like a gazelle on the Serengeti. He followed them into the Solomon's portico, remember? Got up. Okay, obviously a very similar thing happened here in our text with Paul Barnabas and this crippled man. It's a parallel story. It's another example. It's not just an example. It's not some kind of a parable or metaphor. This actually happened just as it had with Peter, John, and the lame beggar. Some think that Luke placed this story here for the purpose of vindicating the Apostle Paul against those who rejected his apostleship. You ever come across that in the Scripture where he has to argue for the legitimacy of his apostleship? After Paul, listen to this, man, this is crazy, after Paul planted churches in Galatia, <laughs> okay, that would be Iconium and Pisidian Antioch and the you know the cities that we're studying around now, Derby and, and Lystra. After he planted churches in Galatia and in Corinth, false teachers known as the Judaizers infiltrated the church. And when they came in, they attacked Paul's teachings. They basically preached a different gospel to these Christians, and they also attacked Paul's credentials as an apostle. And what happened? They threw these churches into confusion, chaos, and which always results in sin and disobedience. Paul learned of these things and wrote epistles that addressed the false teachers, their errors, and the confused believers. In Galatians 1, Uh, 11 to 24 and 1 Corinthians 9, 1 to 3, Paul defended his apostleship against his enemies. Now Luke may have included the uh, account of the crippled man's healing at Lystra right here in our text to show that Paul possessed the same, had been given the same authority, same power, same ability, same standing as Peter because he did the same things that Peter had done back in earlier chapters. Peter commanded a lame man to stand, and he stood. Paul commanded a lame man to stand, and he stood. You see the parallel? You see the defense of Paul's apostolic position? Luke wanted his Greek readers to know that Paul... The church planter, the missionary, and the minister to the, God, to the Gentiles, right? He wanted his reader, he wanted Theophilus and all Greek readers to know this guy's the one who's ministering to you. I want you to know by showing you this particular story that he's just like Peter, I want you to know that he's a bona fide apostle just as Peter was, or is. And so I believe that's probably why we are reading this story right where we are. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Now let's take a look at how the crowd responded to the miracle. Okay, look at verse 11 with me. Are you there? Text says, and when the crowds saw what Paul had done. Okay, they heard him preaching for days upon days upon days. And then when they saw this miracle, which appears to be the first miracle in the region, it says they lifted up their voices. Saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. <laughs> the crowd responded with an acclamation, hailing Paul and Barnabas as gods in human form. Talk about completely missing the point. Luke noted that the people spoke. He even noticed this de- noted this detail for us. He he noted that they spoke in their native tongue Lycaonian why did he put that there why didn't they just say however they wanted to say it well Luke wants us not to miss certain things I think this is very interesting that Luke said they began to praise him in their own languages praise these two in their own language one thing it shows that the people of Lycaonia were probably at least bilingual because Paul spoke Greek okay The crippled man heard and understood Paul, which means that he heard, understood, and probably even spoke Greek. Most people that can hear it and understand it can speak it and write it. The other townspeople probably had the same ability. Now there's another cool thing to note here, and that is that the Lycaonians were known as barbarians. Okay, when we think of barbarians, we immediately see Arnold Schwarzenegger and a 12-foot sword and, you know, and he's you know, just tearing through armies, you know, and all that. That's, that's Hollywood, man. Okay? I mean, I, I, they're the worst movies ever made, but I actually enjoy them. Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer. They're just stupid, but I'm that way. But that's a Hollywood version of Conan okay he was this big muscular battle hardened guy and carried a massive sword and he traveled the world defeating other barbarians and and evil kings and and he won the hearts of fair and not so fair maidens if you've ever seen any of the movies like whoa Mm -hmm. that's the Hollywood version of barbarians a true barbarian a true barbarian is one who lacked refinement ...who lacked learning and who lacked literacy. Which is interesting because they were barbarians, no doubt... ...but they also spoke Greek and Lyokagonian, which is interesting. But, you know, you can pick up on those languages... ...by just hanging out with people that speak them. It doesn't mean you're brilliant. Barbarians were inferior and uncultured. That's the way they were viewed. They were frowned upon by Greeks... ...because of their inability to read and write Latin. Okay? They weren't fluent in that language, which was the prevailing one of the time. Barbarians, however, made good soldiers because of their toughness and tenacity. But Conan is still a stretch of the imagination, you know? Isn't it true that in every Arnold movie, he has a never-ending clip of ammo? Have you ever watched his movies? It's like, dude, you've been shot 70 times and you never run out of bullets, you know? Well, these people were not (laughs) to that level that's Hollywood. But I will say this, and this is an interesting tidbit of historical truth and fact. Barbarians actually brought the Roman Empire to an end. Uh, Rome's army could not defend against the countless waves of attack and finally succumbed. And there were some interpolitical things that helped to bring them down too. And that, that empire stood for a 1,000 years, probably the longest reigning empire in world history. And barbarians, just, <laughs> just barbarians, Brought them down. Pretty amazing how technology can go only so far. But anyway, so these folks were barbarians and they made decent soldiers and all of these things. And, and there were whole communities of barbarians throughout the Roman and Greek world. Lots of communities around there. Caonia was one of these communities. You had these sort of bilingual barbarian types, unrefined, had no idea what a Picasso is. And, and that's where this is all taking place. In Romans 1.14, Paul acknowledged his ministry to barbarians. This is interesting. Maybe you've read it before. He said, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. He said that. And then he says, both to wise and to the foolish. He also said that. It's like the Greeks are wise, the barbarians not so wise. And I think that Paul was referring to the Lycaonian barbarians here, okay? I think that's who he's referring to there in Romans. In comparison to the educated Greeks, the barbarians were considered foolish to some degree. But Paul was obligated to preach the gospel to them regardless because you don't just go in because people are smart and whatever. God takes the foolish and exalts them up above the wise and all those things. Now we can see, here's what's incredible about this, and this is why you get the background. You might be thinking, why are you giving us all these details about these Lycaonians? I don't care about Conan, I don't care. Yeah, you need to. Let me tell you why, because you're going to see an example of their foolishness in verse 12. Okay? Their simple-mindedness, their foolishness. Look at it with me. 12 says Barnabas they called Zeus. (laughs) Zeus, he's Zeus, right? Clash of the Titans. And Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. After seeing the miracle. The Lycaonians believed. And then declared in their own language. That Paul and Barnabas were gods in the flesh. They called Barnabas Zeus. In Greek mythology. Zeus is the god of gods. Or the god above the gods. Or the father of the gods and man. In other words. Zeus is the king. He's the reigning god of gods. He is the highest God now here's something that's interesting Paul was the obvious leader right why then did they consider Barnabas the higher God well guess what it could be because of his appearance he was older than Paul and so they might have figured well he's older so he's got to be the older God or maybe it's because he was taller maybe it's because he was more handsome who knows but they were looking at him saying that's Zeus he's come down And Paul they called Hermes. Now this makes sense because Hermes was thought to be the chief messenger of the gods. And Paul was the one who consistently gave the messages, sermons, preached. So he was obviously the head communicator. So that would, in their minds, make him Hermes. Now the Lycaonians took things even further. (laughs) Another example of their crazy foolishness. Look at verse 13. Okay, it's bad enough that you say, we got gods here. All right, we got some gods in our midst. We got Zeus and we got Hermes. Check it out. Now look at 13. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Uh Uh-oh. The Lycaonians were about to throw down a fat worship service in honor of their two gods in the flesh. Okay, it was bad enough that they just said these guys are gods. We need to worship them. The priest of the temple of Zeus brought animals and garlands and gathered the crowd and began to set up worship service that was going to feature animal sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Talk about, I mean, right? We're all dense, but talk about dense. Hey, the gods are here. Let's get something going on. Get me that, catch that dog over there. Kill it. I mean, it's like, this is like straight out of the Appalachian Mountains in Kentucky. No, I'm just kidding. I actually came from Kentucky. This is incredible here. They're going to worship these guys with animal sacrifice. That's just creepy. I don't like animal sacrifice as it is, but can you imagine? I mean, that's just creepy. They were setting up a service. Now, if there were ever a moment in the ministry and lives of Paul and Barnabas to hit the big time... To receive ultimate glory and honor, to receive unfathomable riches, to receive the highest level of status amongst people, this was it. The people were about to worship them as God's little G. You can't get higher than the level of God. People love, adore, and even worship to some degree, musicians, sports teams, stadiums filled with worshipers, politicians and actors but they all pretty much know that those people are not gods. They know they're humans, but they still worship them to some degree. On the other hand, our friends here, these church planters, these missionaries, were being exalted to the level of God or gods. We're talking way higher than famous movie actor. We're talking way higher than John Elway. Way up there. The level of God... The potential for their own personal increase at this moment was incredible. All they had to do was play along with the Zeus priests and the crowd, and then boom, they'd be living in palaces, driving Bentleys, and dining at the finest restaurants in town, shish kebab galore. Isn't that the chief goal of ministers anyhow? Some would have you believe it. According to some it is, the worker is worth his high wage. God wants to bless his ministers with great riches in the finer things of life while regular folks put their last two cents in the coffer. I recently recorded two episodes of a program called Preachers of L.A., the host, the, the, the show highlights seven or eight big-time, big-time L.A. preachers. These men lead some of the largest churches in the area, and there's a lot of people down there. Some of these churches of theirs have 30,000-plus people. They're like Osteen big. I suspect that each of them belong to some facet of the charismatic movement. Not all charismatics are into these things by no means, but many are. These men preach health and wealth, each of them. A couple of them have committed adultery, had babies with their mistresses, and then got divorced but still remain in their high positions. The Oxygen Network, which it features this program, wants people to believe that these men represent the true church of Jesus Christ, but they do not represent the true church of Jesus Christ. They represent American religion. Do good things and receive good things from God, including eternal life. Think positive thoughts, do good deeds, and God will bless you with more. You know, Joel Osteen theology. He's the poster child and pinnacle preacher for American religion. But the preachers of L.A. make Joel Osteen look like Martin Luther. They're at another level. In our text, Paul and Barnabas were presented with the greatest opportunity of their lives to increase themselves. And I have no doubt in my mind that any one of the preachers of L.A., if they'd have been afforded the same opportunity, they would have leapt at it. Why do I think that? Because of the cars they drive, the homes they live in, the sermons they preach. I'm not saying that God doesn't bless his ministers or his people. But there is a limit. These men live as the highest Hollywood stars live. Does that make any sense for a preacher who's preaching about Jesus Christ who had no place to rest his head? No. No. Any one of these guys would have said, huh, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up shop in Derby. I'm going to set up shop in Leicester. This is the perfect place to plant one of our health and wealth churches. The p- pursuit of prestige of these men and the lavishness of their lifestyles proves it. Now how did Paul and Barnabas respond to this grand opportunity for self-exaltation and glorification? How did they respond? I'll tell you how they responded, friends. They responded just as any true person or minister of Jesus Christ should respond. Look at verse 14 with me. 14 and 15. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, They immediately opened up a shop and started taking offerings, went down to the Ferrari dealership. Oh, oh, wait a minute, I'm reading from something else. It says, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God or to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. The first thing they did when they saw this playing out was that they tore their garments. Do you know what that means? The tearing of one's garments was done to convey the highest possible level of of disgust reminded of how the high priest Caiaphas tore his vestment when Jesus claimed to be God it was absolutely tragic that Caiaphas rejected Christ and tore his vestment but we can learn about Jewish culture from his example can we not he was utterly disgusted with what Jesus said and ripped off his thing and he wasn't even supposed to tear that off never would you do that he could tear something off but not that special vest with all the jewels in it ripped it off to tear one's garment was to show the highest level of disgust the highest level of disapproval the highest level of disagreement when Paul and Barnabas tore their garments that is exactly what they were conveying they were utterly disgusted by the idea it was like a filthy idea to them a dirty wicked idea to them Being worshipped brought about that sense of disgust. They completely disapproved of what the crowd was attempting to do. After tearing their cloaks in disgust, they rushed into the crowd to stop them from proceeding. They ripped their vestments and ran into the crowd. They began to correct and plead with the people. Now, since Paul was the chief communicator, he spoke on both of their behalf. Notice the details of Paul's correction with me, okay? Number one, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. Paul said, in effect, are you out of your minds. Why are you attempting to worship created beings? Men. Calvin commented. He said. Uh, he actually called back in, during the Reformation. Calvin called creation the theatrum gloriae Dei. Which means the theater of God's glory. Creation is God's stage where he displays his glory. Creation exists for the glory of God. Just go back and read Psalm 148 again. You heard it read earlier. Read it over and over and over. All things exist for the glory of God. Now since creation exists for the glory of, and worship of God, it is sheer lunacy, it is absolute craziness and unlawful for men to glorify and worship the creation. Worshiping the creation rather than the creator is blasphemy. When people glorify and worship creation, they misunderstand the purpose of creation, which is to glorify its creator. God did not create all things so that we would worship all things. God created all things that we would worship him. Creation is the theater of God's glory, not a center for man's idolatry. And from the very beginning, that's what man has attempted to do with it, to make it a center for his idolatry. The fact of the matter is, is that God does not and will not share his glory with anything or anyone. The first two commandments make this lucidly clear. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that it is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So the first part of his correction are you nuts? Do you not understand that you are to worship God alone and not what he's created, especially a bunch of guys like us? Number 2, part of his correction is we bring you good news. Paul said in effect, "We didn't come seeking to be exalted and worship heaven forbid, we came to bring you the good news, the gospel." Paul let them know that they missed the reason for their visit, the purpose for his preaching and the purpose for the miracle. In Paul's sermon in Acts 13, did we see anything that would suggest that Paul was interested in exalting or glorifying himself? No, Paul said nothing like that. And Paul preached the same sermon at the Agora in Lystra. Wherever he went, that's the sermon that he preached. Something similar to that. Slight variations, but always the same stuff. And what was that same stuff? Jesus Christ is Israel's and the world's Messiah. Jesus Christ was resurrected. Jesus Christ is alive. There is, and he also preached something so incredibly important. Really the nature of the gospel. The whole thing here. There is forgiveness and freedom in the name of Jesus That's what Paul's been preaching. How on earth did these people figure through all that preaching and that miracle that they would be trying to set themselves up as gods? Paul never said anything like that. You see the foolishness coming out? Paul and Barnabas must have been dumbfounded by how these people missed the point. Did they not hear Paul? No, they heard him. Did they not understand Paul? Obviously not. They did not understand the good news. If anything, it seems that they simply tried to add the gospel or aspects of it to their mythological religion. People do this today. They hear the gospel and they try to fit it into what they already believe. They try to add it to their beliefs. But the gospel cannot be added to one's beliefs. It must replace one's beliefs. Amen? Jesus cannot be added to a person's life. Jesus cannot be put as a placement. He's not number one, two, or three in a person's life. According to the scriptures, he must become our life. He is the way of our life. He is the truth of our life. And He is the life of our life. Our existence is in Him, friends. And forgiveness and freedom is eternally secured in His finished work. I hope you hear me. Notice the third detail about Paul's correction. I call it the rebuke. He says... Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul said, turn from these vain things. Do you know what a vain thing is, friend? A vain thing is a thing that has no value whatsoever. In one fell swoop, Paul dashed to pieces their religion. Paul called their religion, what they did, a vain thing. MacArthur said the phrase vain things aptly describes the idolatry of Lystra and of all false religion. All religion apart from the one true God is futile, hopeless, and in vain. The Lycaonians believed in Greek mythology, they built a temple for its Highest God, Zeus, they had a priest that served Zeus and the people. Greek mythology was not only their religion, but their worldview and their way of life. It was ingrained in them just as Judaism was ingrained in the Jews. Greek mythology was the lens by which they saw and understood all things. And Paul said, it is all vain. Everything you know is vain. What boldness. What courage. And these people were barbarians who later took down the Roman Empire. Notice how Paul called for the crowd to repent. He said, turn to a living God Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. What is implied by the phrase turn to a living God? I'll tell you what's implied. That their mythology, religion, Zeus, Hermes and all that are dead. Turn to a living God. Which means you right now are facing one that is dead. It is nothing more than an idol carved by man's hands. Turn away from what is dead and turn to a living God is what he's saying. How Zeus does not live. Hermes does not live. They are nothing more than idols wrought by the hands of men. Calvin again says something that just nails that the mind of man begets an idol, and his hands give it birth. This mythology was a concoction of their own imaginations and sin and flesh. And Paul says it's all vain. All of it. There isn't half a percent of anything in it that has any value. It's all chaff and stubble. Paul said in effect, your gods are dead and you need to turn to the living God, a living God, the one who made all things. Paul gave them then evidence of the existence of this living God by pointing to creation. Creation is teeming with life. Heaven is filled with living angels and the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The earth is filled with living people, animals, insects, and plants. The sea is filled with living fish, animals, creatures, and plants. Paul's point is that creation has life because it was created by a living God. That's his point. Preach it. He then commanded that they turn from dead idols to this living God, this one who created all things. What you see around you has life because a living God made it. We're not that living God. Look at 16 to 17. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. Satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul said in effect... In the past, God allowed the nations to do as they pleased. Now, this is probably a reference to what Paul wrote in Romans one eighteen to twenty-five. God has made His living existence perfectly clear through creation, but man chose to worship the creation rather than God. God then turned man over to his idolatry and lust. You've read it, right? God allowed man to live as he pleases and to walk in his own ways. And Paul said, again paraphrase, God has revealed himself to you. Here's another truth, another example of his livingness, how he's in your midst. God has revealed himself to you by what? Giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts and food and gladness. Paul, in effect, held his listeners accountable right here. He said, in effect, you've been doing your own thing and you've enjoyed the rains, you've enjoyed the fruitful seasons, you've had satisfaction, you've had food, and you've been glad. Where do you think those things came from? That's what he said. That's just the Phil Baker version of it. You got all this stuff going on. You got look at those clothes on you. Look at that. Is that a, is that a bagel dog? You know where that bagel dog came from, Holmes? Right? Let's just keep it at our level. you got clothes on your back. you got a nice camel to ride. It rains. you got kids. Where do you think all that comes from? And we laugh at it. But do you know how many hundreds of thousands and millions of Americans walk around with all the stuff and give no glory to God whatsoever, thinking that they've built it all with their own hands or they attribute all of it to Zeus? Or some works righteousness or something. He said in effect you've been doing your own thing. And you've enjoyed the rains, the fruitful seasons, the satisfaction, the food, the gladness. Where do you think those things came from? Paul's big point. All those things came to you from a living God. The living God has evidenced himself to you by and through those things. Now, this had to be a pretty compelling argument, right? I was convinced when I studied I was like, boom, man, this guy's a preacher. Well, don't get too excited. Look at 18. We're getting close to wrapping this thing up. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. It looks as if Paul and Barnabas were able to keep the Lycaonians from offering sacrifices to them, but just barely. Scarcely indicates that the crowd was not repentant in any way, shape, or form. They were merely restrained from going through with their idolatrous deed. If Paul and Barnabas had not kept up the pressure, they would have gone through with the sacrifices. There was no life change here. These people remained unaffected by the gospel. They remained unaffected by Paul's warnings. How sad... Verse 18 literally illustrates how powerful idolatry can be. The worship of self, the worship of others, the worship of things, the worship of false gods can and does block people every day, every minute from hearing and submitting to the truth which can save them even when it's plainly preached just as we see in this text. Can you get any simpler than this? Idolatry is a powerful delusion. And I'd like to end with a question. What or who are you clinging to today? Are you clinging to yourself and... And what you think is righteousness and your good deeds and, and all the nice little things that you do. And, and, you know, you think you're pleasing God with your actions and all these things. And that's your religion. And me just doing good and becoming a better person and, and so on and so forth. Uh, is that who you're clinging to for your salvation? You? Are you clinging to others? And so I used to preach this all the time to students. They think they're saved by their parents' faith. Nope. Well, I put my hope in Zeus, put my hope in me, I put my hope in Zeus, I put my hope in that preacher over there, put my hope in Allah, put my hope in Muhammad, Charles Taze Russell, I put my hope in. You cling into your possessions and bank accounts. Many a rich man enters hell because of that. My bank account is where my security is. My possessions. You cling into your traditions? Jesus plus these things? You cling into your religion? You think religion's going to save you? You know how many people in this nation believe that religion's going to save them and that's why they go to mass all the time and everything else? You cling in to dead gods. If you believe that your deliverance, your salvation, your future are wrapped up in any or all of those things, you're the same as the Lycaonians. I beg you to repent. I beg you to repent of that sin, that sin of idolatry, trusting in anything other than the living God through Jesus Christ. Turn from that sin. Those things will not deliver and save you. You need to put your faith, and put your trust, put your life in Jesus Christ. Only he can deliver and save you. Turn from your idolatry and put your faith in Him. Turn to the living Christ and ask Him to give you life. He will forgive you of your idolatry. He will forgive you of your sins. He will forgive you of your striving and trying to earn your way, trying to do things yourself. He'll con- he will forgive you of every, every sin that you've ever done against Him. And He will clothe you in his righteousness which is perfect you don't have a righteousness no false god no yourself no deeds no works nothing can give you the righteousness you need to see the kingdom of god only jesus christ can and if you submit to him if you give him your life he will wrap you up in that beautiful sparkling white garment oh he will make you a new person If you're already clinging to Jesus, if he is your Lord and Savior, rejoice. (laughs) God has been merciful to you, a sinner. How marvelous is the living God. How wonderful is he. How great are his works. Rejoice in him and give him praise. Amen.